You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Thursday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. Welcome to the Flip My Phone podcast. I'm doing this series where every Tuesday we're finding some incredible people who can do a Tuesday takeover. And, and part of the community is like, that's how you grow a great community. That's how you hear a lot of great conversations. So I have with me Yog, who is the host of the ABM Conversations podcast. He's one of the top 100 MarTech influencers. And just figured out, he is also the author of seven books. His latest book, actually, Revenue Marketing, he's put it on free on Amazon for people to go take it. So he's a really go-giver kind of person. And the series that he's running is called Best of B2B Marketing. And it's a four-part series that I want you to share more about what are these interviews and what things people are going to get out of it. Right. I'm absolutely excited. And thank you for this, Sangram. So, uh, you know, this series, as you rightly called us, uh, you know, the B2B marketing series, what we uh, what we do here is that I've interviewed four different people. The first one, of course, uh, the topics kind of vary uh, from ABM to uh, ROI to social selling. And, uh, you know, we go into MarTech, so on and so forth. So the first one uh, with you, Sangram, you know, we discussed ABM. We went in depth as to it's not about the number of tools that we use, but how we effectively use it and how ABM is a strategy. And uh, it's not about the kind of tools that you use. So that was a wonderful conversation. I would love for people to take a deeper look into that. And uh, the next conversation was between me and my uh, co-host Manish. We spoke about social selling in ABM. So in this topic, uh, when you look at it, I figured out that a lot of of us do this on LinkedIn, right? So we go in, uh, we just connect with somebody and immediately start selling. That's not how social selling is done. It needs to be, you know, establishing your own brand, be social first, and over a period of time, become an authority who people come to and begin conversations with. So that's what that topic is all about and how we can use that in the context of ABM. And then I had an opportunity to talk with Chris Walker. Uh, We discussed about how we waste a lot of money in marketing and how we can uh, get the right kind of ROI based on our investments. And finally, you know, the chief MarTech, Scott Brinker, that was a wonderful opportunity for me as well. With him, I got to talk in depth about the current MarTech landscape. And, uh, you know, I asked him certain questions like, uh, why is that we as marketers aren't that puzzled when we have more and more MarTech vendors um, and MarTech uh, consultants compared to the number of tools that come in day by day. And we had a wonderful conversation. We spoke about, uh, say, the kind of integrations and the kind of four levels of integrations, and we went deeper about that space. So uh, these are four amazing conversations, and you know, I would love for the people to enjoy this. Awesome. So if you are listening to this for the first time, then you are in a treat. This is going to drop every Tuesday as part of the Tuesday Takeover. And But if you are catching us in the middle, let's say you're listening to the Scott Brinker's episode right now, go back to the last three Tuesdays and you can catch uh, Yog's conversation with me, with Manish, and also with Chris Walker. Great conversation. Again, this is the series on the Flip Monthly Podcast follows the best of the B2B marketers. And this is with Yog and his information and everything will also will be in the show notes. So Yog, thank you so much for taking the time and hope everybody have a fun time listening to it. Thank you so much, Sangram. It's been a pleasure. We are going to play the 
ROI game with a very special guest today in the ABM Conversations podcast. This is me, your host, Manish Nepal. And this is me, Yagneshwaran Ganesh. Our guest for today's show is Chris Walker, who is the CEO of Refine Lab that is based out of Boston. Welcome and thank you for making it to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. Chris has an eclectic mix of work experience ranging from being a product manager to becoming the CEO of the growth marketing company today. But other than that, Chris, I think you should introduce yourself to the listeners of the ABM Conversations podcast. Yeah, ha- happy to do it. So, so yeah, like you mentioned, I started my I started my career in in product actually in engineering and then product ma- upstream product management, designing products, going out and interviewing customers, understanding how to position the product, what new features to build, those types of things. I think that's a foundation that a lot of marketers do not have. Um, additionally, inside of the product management, like when I worked at a company, I owned the P and L for that product, and so I thought about it more like a CEO of that product line than as a marketer. And so that was some great experience. And then over the last five years of my career, I spent my time um, in some venture-funded, fast-growing companies. And while I was in there, I was studying and I was was seeing how companies were making investments to generate revenue and seeing how inefficient a lot of the sales activities and the sales investments were. And over that period of time of like three to four years, I experimented with a lot of different marketing approaches and feel like I have a model that is just a better path to growth for companies. And so I started a company, my own company, Refine Labs, about almost 18 months ago now from my couch on one $100 an hour contract, writing to building a content strategy for a company and have continued to grow that. We now have nine employees throughout the US and we work with 15 primarily software as a service companies architecting their digital demand and content strategy. Lovely, lovely, uh, Chris. And let's start with Refine Labs. Since uh, Refine Labs is a growth marketing agency, I'm sure uh, almost every client you talk to talks about, you know, the ROI of running a marketing campaigns all the time. I can imagine people asking you questions like, uh, what can you do for us? Uh, and how is the campaign going to go? What will that result in and so on, right? But for all you know, your suggestion to the clients might be telling them to change the way they are existing, they are currently doing their marketing before even running a campaign. So how does those conversations usually go? And if you can uh, share a story of if you have suggested your any of your clients to tweak their existing strategy and if that has led to, uh, you know, improving their revenue stream. Of course, you can skip the name of the company if that's... Uh... Sure. Yeah, of course. So so most, uh, I'll say most because all would be an overstatement, but most software as a service companies throughout North America will essentially operate based on the serious decisions demand waterfall, which the principle of that is generate as many leads as possible and then let your SDR team filter through them and whoever gets through will become an opportunity and then they'll close at a certain rate. And you can calculate and try and make sense of that whole thing. And it's working less and less over time because of the way that buyers have changed. And so the initial conversation has to be around what is the ROI of what you're doing today, right? So before we talk about the ROI of the things that we might be able to do together, let's look at the ROI of what's happening today. You're spending this amount of money. You're getting a certain amount of leads. You believe that the cost per lead 
number that you're getting is good, but why don't we measure it against something better or more accurate like customer acquisition cost? And when we start looking at it in that frame, it illuminates a lot of issues with the existing model, like the fact that on average, 0.1% of ebook content downloads will convert to customers when they have a sales cadence behind them. And so that means that you have your SDRs or whoever's doing that follow-up calling 1,000 people and 999 of them are not going to buy something. That's a problem. And so looking at what is happening today and then trying to transition the way that companies think about this. Because if companies don't shift the way that they're thinking about it, then we're probably not going to be the right partner because you can go out and find a performance marketing agency, which is essentially, in my view, like sort of a commodity. Like anyone can push buttons in LinkedIn and get you conversions. The question is whether or not they're going to buy something. And so, yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. $30 million SaaS company comes to us. We run the analysis. They had 30,000 MQLs generated during the analysis period. Out of those 30,000, they closed 30 deals, which is right on track with the metric that I said of 0.1%. And what we realized is that they actually started to get more revenue when their leads went down significantly. And so our target right now is 100 leads. And when I say lead, let's, all, let's define that for everyone. A lead, in my view, is somebody that on their own comes to you and says, I'd like to talk to your sales rep about buying a product. They do it on their own and they have buying intent. And so things like paid social, direct response, demo ads inside of LinkedIn do not fit that mold. And the conversion rates through the funnel show that. And so if we're able to change what we look at, which we, if we're misaligned on the idea that lead volume is the, is the metric, then we probably wouldn't be the right fit to work together in this fictitious conversation. And so, yeah, that's, that's in essence what I think about. I map my activities to marketing ROI in the form of customer acquisition cost, customer acquisition cost, payback period, accelerated growth rate, accelerated pipeline velocity, combining metrics like win rate, sales cycle length, number of qualified opportunities generated, an average deal size. And I'm trying to move all those metrics in the right direction. And that's how I think about it, because that's what's going to grow a business long term. Right. And I'm, I'm particularly happy that, uh, you know, you spoke about um, uh, running ads, uh, you know, um, sponsored content and all, because that's that's something that I wanted to uh, follow up with what you just spoke. Like, for instance, you know, when, when people are talking about ROI, I think one of the areas where uh, attribution happens or tends to happen in the most dumbest way possible is, uh, you know, content marketing. Uh, for example, the last piece of content from where a signup tends to happen uh, tends to get too much of credit, though we all know that uh, nobody's going to sign up after just uh, consuming one piece of uh, blog content or one video. In fact, you know, in one of the places where uh, Manish and I used to work in the past, we used to run uh, AMAs and uh, do interview blogs and they drove immense awareness and uh, they were driving in a lot of, uh, you know, very relevant traffic. Uh, but we were asked to um, stop because uh, they were looking at conversion from a totally different standpoint. For them, it, it was more like, you know, you, you run an ad um, and uh, from there uh, somebody signs up. So that's, that was the primary conversion that uh, people tend to look at. So um, how do you look at attribution? And uh, more precisely, uh, you know, what do you measure and how? The first thing that we'll say here and everyone listening to this will understand is that there is no attribution for you listening to this podcast right now. There is no attribution for a lot of different touch points that drive buying decisions. There's no attribution for me telling my friend that they should listen to this podcast or buy whatever you're selling, right? 
all of these things that I think are actually the most impactful on driving buying decisions are not measurable. And so I think the, the idea of attribution in a theory is smart. We should be able to measure all of the things that we, we can, but we need to add a layer of common sense on top of whatever the attribution software that we're using is telling us. And we need to have a layer of common sense where we have no tracking on this person and they have a branded search query and, and they click on the branded search Google AdWords ad and ask for a demo that there was probably something that happened before that that drove that behavior. And so and then what's going to happen is companies are going to bubble up all of the different AdWords revenue, not even break. Most companies won't even break it out between branded and non-branded and say AdWords is a good channel. The second point on this is that we marketers tend to do the things that they can measure not the things that are most effective. And so thing, we see a lot of companies that love to spend $200,000 a month on Google AdWords because they get all the conversions, right? The challenge is that if those, the, all of the conversions that you can measure are not amounting to an actual business outcome, over time, the business is going to be vulnerable because people you need to be marketing in other channels that can't be measured to drive new people into the funnel to even come and search for you. And so, yeah, I think the last point I'll make here is that companies, I think most companies do a very poor job of separating the idea. And I posted about this today on LinkedIn, separating the idea between performance marketing and brand marketing. Performance marketing should be direct attribution, ROI driven. That's what most companies take 100% of their budget and do that. Because they think about it like a salesperson, which is black and white, or they think about it like a CFO. And I think a, a lot more of the value and a lot more of the budget should be allocated to brand marketing, something like a podcast, something like me posting on LinkedIn to help people with no direct attribution to a sales conversation. And I can tell you that the companies that run this model and do it well and are focused on buyers, not focused on themselves and promoting their company and their products, get really good results better. Then when we compare them to the performance marketing channels like running get a demo ads on LinkedIn or spending $100,000 a month on Google AdWords. Right. Absolutely. How do you think this impacts on the predictability that a typical SaaS company would expect from their marketing team? What I mean here is that, uh, you know, uh, on one side, uh, people are looking at uh, predictability of leads coming in. Um, so on one side, we are primarily looking at, uh, say, performance marketing which runs uh, you know, specific ads to drive an inbound lead. Whereas uh, the set of things, um, you know, otherwise on content, we are looking to drive the right kind of traffic. So from that, you know, people are always looking at how do I, am I driving the right kind of people? And what is the, what is the one particular aspect through which you will be measuring that? Is it, is it always uh, the number of people searching for your brand name or is it to your product category? How do you measure that is what something that I'm trying to understand. Yeah, so... It's really interesting how I think about this. I think this is going to work for you and also the people that are listening to this is that I measure the success of a channel based on the goals of what I'm trying to accomplish inside of that channel. And then I measure the business results at the business level. And so the first leading metric that I'm going to look at is number of demo requests at the business level or not, whatever your primary conversion point on your website is. That's going to be the thing that I, that I initially measure. Now, when we're at the channel level, like on, if we break down my LinkedIn goals, for instance, 
I am looking at what is the goal of that channel? It's to create awareness inside of the ICP and have people enjoy the information and consume it. That's the goal. It is not to have so not to have someone read the content, click on a tracking HubSpot link, and then submit a demo. And the and when you shift your mindset around that, you produce better content, you distribute it more effectively. The copy you put with it is actually focused on driving outcomes for the customer. And if you do it the right way, this is not it become it's still predictable. It's just way more high efficiency. You're not to say that companies should be 100% brand either. Like that's what I do because I'm I feel like I have it into a cadence and we continuously have exponential growth from the stuff that we're doing and not not to say that what I'm doing is good. Like a lot of companies could do this if they change the way they measure marketing and they put smart people on these projects instead of people that think that they can do social media that don't understand buyers. If they put the right people and the right metrics in place, everyone could do this. And so I think companies should also have a mix of performance. I just think that the balance, which is right now 100% performance, 0% brand, or if they do spend money on brand, it's a throwaway, like a trade show booth. I think the balance of those budgets needs to be reallocated in a different way. And so what I would do is I would make drastic improvements to the efficiency and the targeting and the channel allocation on the performance side. And I could probably get similar results for people that are for what they're spending 100K and to get similar results at 50K and then take the other 50K that's left over and go and do brand stuff that I think works a lot better. And so that's that's kind of the way I think about it. Whatever the allocation is, 50%, 50%, 20%, 80%, that's a decision that needs to be made based on the performance of both of those things put together. But that is, in general, how I think about it. Right, right. Totally love it. Now, shifting the focus to the other side, right? So um, let's talk about leads. So one of the one of the key things um, that gets um, uh, misrepresented or misunderstood is uh, is the intent part. So, for example, um, an SDR uh, typically tends to qualify every lead that comes into the system for intent. That is the general understanding is that uh, you try to qualify for an incoming request for say buying intent, having a budget, or maybe a you know, clear pain point, and so on and so forth. Don't you think uh, you know uh, the intent creation is a KPI that organization should own in sense like who owns uh, intent according to you and uh, you know what what would be a typical kind of a KPI you would set to an organization so that people start um, you know manufacturing that intent from our side yeah which so it gets back to the point that I made before which is that I'm the first KPI that I care about is number of submissions in the ICP with buying intent which is a, a demo request right or it could be a contact us or a chat flow or a lot of different things, right? But companies don't split those out. And so they're reporting on MQLs and 99.9% of the MQLs had no buying intent because they're running all their ads for content downloads and they have an SDR following up. Now, I will say that we've run this experiment with four companies now and the people with buying intent should go to, to the account executive because that's the person that they asked to talk to. They asked for a demo of the software. They didn't ask to be, go through a qualification process with no value delivered to decide whether or not they belong there and firmographically plus buying intent means that they should get there anyway. Right. And so like I give this example a lot, it makes a ton of sense. It's like if you're selling to CFOs at companies that have greater than 10,000 employees in blah, blah, blah industry and somebody, a CFO that fits that profile at that company in that industry fills out a request and said, Hey, I would love a demo of your software. And you're going to pass that to an SDR 
Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. And I think a lot of companies and I've, I, the data will show this if anyone would give, would give the chance to the experiment. I've done it at four companies. The data will show this is that when you make the shift, your conversion rate to, a, to the initial meeting will be the same, but your win rate will be better when you pass them directly to account executives because the first meeting goes a lot better. Right. Is it because the SDR, um, you know, uh, isn't able to talk much about the product in depth? Uh, what do you think is the typical reason there? I, I break this down into three core reasons. The first one is I think the first call is critical to build a relationship with someone. And you can't build a relationship with someone that you're not going to finish the process with. So that's one. The second one is I think lack of knowledge to talk at the level of the person, right? And so we have an SDR. I'm And just as a preface, like I'm not talking down on SDRs. I'm talking about what the buyer needs. And so we have an, an SDR that might be younger and not understand the industry. And all of a sudden they have to talk to a CFO for 20 minutes. And what do they do? They fall back on the question checklist or the things that they have and not, not able to have a super educated conversation. The third thing is that the person asks for a demo and typically the SDR is not allowed to do that. And so I just think for those, I think those three reasons bubble up into a difference. And I w- my guess is somewhere between 10 and 20% win rate difference. Right. Makes sense. So before we uh, move further, uh, we wanted to take a quick opportunity to uh, you know thank our sponsors, which is uh, Zest.is. And uh, for people who uh, are new or who don't know who Zest is, they are a marketing content stream that sits on your Google Chrome browser as a new tab extension. It's a platform where you can submit and curate uh, high quality articles, podcasts, infographics, videos, and eBooks. So it's highly powered AI algorithm allows you to handpick your personalized content feed that is very specific to your taste. And I'll never get tired of saying this, that me and Yag, we uh, as marketers and content creators, we use Jest a lot. And based on the feedback that we have been getting from you guys, our listeners of the AVM Conversations podcast, many of you also use Zest to promote as well as discover new content to and from like-minded marketing communities from across the globe. So if you want to further boost your high quality content to an elite community of marketers, please go and sign up at zest.is slash content boost and get a $75 off on your first boost by letting them know that you heard it from the ABM Conversations podcast. So coming back to the questions, uh, Chris, I want to uh, dig a little deeper. Intent, customer intent is uh, one of the hottest buzzwords in sales and marketing circles right now. But there is a significant gap in identifying the customer's actual intent. For example, like you and Yag were talking, while SDRs have the first contact with the customers, they aren't the ones who offer demos or they aren't the ones who understand the product deeply, right? And uh, while the pre-sales team understands the product better than SDRs, they come into the picture much later. And I know you've partly answered this, but is this something that you have noticed while working with your clients? And if so, how do you suggest companies going through the same problem fix this gap or understand customer intent better? So let's focus on on the SDR component. So the the real answer is that most companies can't. They can't fix this. The reason is because their marketing team is driving so much junk that the SDRs need to have the first call. That is the, that is step one. And so step one to solving that is actually completely changing how you do marketing that is driven on quality ICP conversions, not volume of conversions of whoever is converting, right? 
And so when you go from having 3,000 junk leads coming in every month and some SDRs are like searching for a needle in a haystack, trying to find the one person that might have the meeting, instead of that, what if we only generated 100 leads and 55 of them converted to qualified opportunities? Like that seems like a better approach. So if companies are able to make that shift and you have the leads converting to opportunities at 55% instead of 0.02%, that empowers you to give those people directly to account executives because the account executives are not wasting a lot of time chasing down people that don't actually want to talk to them. And so, and then if you're able to make that step, then the SDRs can go and do what I think would be much more high value work, like strategic outbound or content creation or managing a, a chat on the website or following up with con- comments on LinkedIn or you know doing research for an ABM program there are a million things that those that those resources could do that are so much more valuable than following up with content downloads for people that did not ask to talk to you and so that is that is the process that we put in place it typically will take a company somewhere between 3 and 12 months to make that transition depending on how much volume is coming through and how big the organization is and how much change needs to happen there but that is uh that's the that's the approach is to own is to only pass people to sales that have buying intent and when you take that approach it changes the way that you do marketing you stop running so much performance content downloads and celebrating mqls and you start educating people and informing people so that they're ready to buy something your mix your channel allocation your the amount of effort and knowledge and and talent that you put behind your content changes your focus and effort across different channels and things like that changes because you're focused now on the buyer not on how many leads you can get and don't get me wrong like getting getting leads is important but getting the people that are going to buy stuff is way more important otherwise it's just noise and inefficiencies and hidden costs and all of those different things. I, I agree. I think this is a great answer because, uh, you know, I think the question uh, was uh, framed incorrectly because I think uh, we are only looking at one aspect of the problem and not the whole funnel. But the problem has to be fixed uh, towards the beginning where marketing works in identifying ICP and all that. And it goes back to one of the recurring themes that we keep coming across in the podcast where we talk about how marketing and sales have to be aligned in uh, hitting the same goal. So that was a great answer. Uh, uh, in fact, you know, um, this this uh, conversation reminds me of uh, something that's uh, really interesting uh, that we, in fact, uh, recently uh, touched upon in one of our episodes. You know, in fact, we went on a rant where uh, we said that it doesn't make sense for content marketers to push your website visitors to, you know, go and subscribe for your blog, for instance, right? So different people uh, look at um, content in different ways. For certain people, as you said, you know, it's it's a mix of uh, uh, performance on one side and it's a mix of brand building on another side. For certain people, it's about uh, you know using sponsored content to drive with a CTA and so on and so forth. But um, you know that is something that uh, we wanted to uh, ask you. I I have a really I have a point I want to get here. I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but I just had an idea. So you mentioned the the subscribe to the blog, and so this is I've never mentioned this before, but it's a hypothesis I have. I would I'm. I would love to try it out with a company, which is that what most companies will do right now is they will, depending on their ACV and different things, is they will run LinkedIn 
content download ads and then put them into an email nurture. And they'll pay $80 to a lead or whatever, 30 to 80. And then they'll go through the nurture and most people won't do anything. And that's what will happen. So what if instead, what if instead we completely flip this and we were running LinkedIn ads to create followers? So the objective of the ad was someone to follow the company page on LinkedIn. And then on LinkedIn, your company page was pumping out four to 12 pieces of good quality buyer focused content every day. That makes a lot more sense than doing the same thing for the email nurture. And you're going to pay way less for the followers. And you're going to get way more attention on LinkedIn than you are through email. Um, I just don't, I don't understand how companies have not, dis- have not evaluated the things that you're, they're doing right now and think about if there's a better way to do it. Right. You mean uh, using, using the uh, company pages more like a news channel where uh, you constantly feed them with good, good information that people can look forward to? Email or LinkedIn through your company page is just distribution of content. That's really the, they're both mediums to deliver information. That's what they are. And so I don't know why we're so in love with email, right? Because way less people see email, way less people open it. Like, what if, what if, if we stop putting, having someone's email address on a pedestal and started thinking about things maybe a little bit differently? Like, I know that when I get a follower on LinkedIn, they're going to pay way more attention to my content on LinkedIn than if I sent them an email. I just know it. Yeah, I guess uh, you are also, uh, we are also going into the territory of uh, social selling that is, uh, you know, more organic and meaningful way of interacting with customers instead of not necessarily throwing money at your marketing problem. Is that correct, Chris? Um, you know, I, re- I really don't consider it social selling. I consider it just like, very strong content marketing with progressive approaches to distribution. Social social selling, I think, has very conflicting or or unclear views to people, right? So in my view, social selling is what was packaged and sold by somebody in 2015, where you connect with people, you engage with their posts three times in Sales Navigator, and then you send them a DM to buy something. Like that's I think what the common understanding of what social selling is this is very different like we i spend no time thinking about selling it's it really ne- it really never crosses my mind i produce information that helps people 99.9% of people that see the content would never work with me but they'll go and do it themselves and then they'll tell somebody that should work with me about it about how good the podcast is or how they tried the thing that i recommended and it worked and karma plays itself out and so if we stop measuring on such short-term KPIs, you would get way more, you would get way better marketing results. Right. Yeah. I, I guess uh, that was the definition of social selling that mm-hmm. I was hinting towards because we just an episode about uh, social selling entirely. And those were the points we also hit on uh, saying how you should be educating, informing your customers, not necessarily about your product, but about how to improve mm-hmm. their lives for the problem. Uh, your product solves and how to educate them and how to maybe entertain them but having necessarily having meaningful conversations and interacting and not necessarily thinking about hard selling your products or services 100% in fact uh, you know something that you just uh, mentioned chris this is uh, this is something that i wanted to i was going towards and i was going to ask you about is uh, you know you you often tend to um, talk about creating content for a specific uh, distribution medium so, um, you know, you spoke about LinkedIn, but if you can uh, give us broader uh, mindset or the thought process around what do you mean by, uh, you know, specific dis- distribution medium and creating content for 
a specific medium and what would be your way to go about it? Yeah. So the message that I send you via the podcast is going to be, is going to have to be different than the message that I would send you through the mail. Right. And that's, that's the most extreme example of the way that I think about it. It gets a lot more nuanced if you're just within different social platforms. A lot of people, but whether it's because of tech or something have been trained that you just make a piece of content and then blast it out on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram with the same stuff. And the nuances in the channel are really important, right? So like, I wouldn't post the same thing that I post on LinkedIn on Twitter. Right. Makes sense. If you would create a content specifically for say LinkedIn or say for Facebook. So what would be your plan for distribution? Like, do you start with a distribution plan and then create content according to that? Or like, where does it actually start? That's what I wanted to ask. Yeah, so it it starts on how we're going to fill the channel and then how people are using the channel, right? And so I know that if we're going to run Facebook, for the sake of Facebook, I'm talking about paid. If I'm using Facebook paid, it is driving people to short form written content that does not have a gate and does not have a form to talk to a sales rep afterwards. And so I know that that is the, the way that the most effective use of that channel. Now on on LinkedIn, for instance, like there's a nuance here where like most people that consume content on LinkedIn do not want to leave the feed. And I watch a hundred, hundreds of people every day that write, this podcast was so great, 60 minutes of fire, come and check it out. And they post the link in there and nobody on LinkedIn, very few people on LinkedIn are going to scroll through and say, oh, I can't wait to spend the next hour listening to this podcast. That's not how people use the platform. It's a, it's a platform for micro content micro content inside of the feed. Now, the micro there is very different because like some people will say, it's got to be micro, 15 15 seconds or less, six second videos will do great. They're pandering to the the view metric. Now, if I post a video, I don't think that the length very really much matters. I posted eight minute videos on LinkedIn and they've done fantastic. It's the quality of the content that matters, not the length. Um, so that, those are some of the the things that are going through my mind on like the nuances of the platforms. Right. Makes sense. Totally. Chris, uh, since we are on the topic of ROI, what is one area according to you where marketing teams waste most of their money despite getting no tangible or attributable returns? Content syndication is the one that I think is the worst right now because I've audited more than a dozen SaaS companies that are spending Fifty to five hundred thousand dollars a year on content syndication, getting a bunch of leads and closing them at less than point zero one percent, less than point one percent. And so, when you calculate that to a customer acquisition cost metric, the ROI is very, very poor. However, the cost per lead to people that don't understand what they're doing looks very attractive. And so, I know I've had conversations with CMOs, and I say, "Did you know?" that we had 40,000 leads from content syndication. We paid $200,000 for this last year and we closed one opportunity for 30 grand ARR. Did you know that this was happening? Should we turn it off? Because this feels like a complete waste of $200,000. And they, they say back to me, no, I need to hit the MQL metric. If I don't hit it, I'm going to lose my job. And that is, that is the problem. That is the root of sales and marketing misalignment. The, the, the CMO knows that it doesn't work, but has to do it because that's how they're scored and they need their job, right? And so like 
they're the the root of sales and marketing misalignment is very very clear and very simple. It's very it comes down to fix the metrics and then fix the behavior and then it fixes itself. Right, fix the system. Yeah. So we are getting towards the end of the show, uh, Chris, and I have a couple of uh, rapid fire questions for you if you are ready. I'm always ready. Uh, so the answers that you will give uh, doesn't have to be as short as the questions that I'm going to ask. It's cool. just a list of uh, questions I have, I'll have for you back to back. Let's do it. All right, then. Question number one, what's better according to you, gated content or non-gated content and why? 100% non-gated content because the gate prevents people from actually consuming it. And the gate changes your mindset of the content. It, I believe that the gate negatively impacts the actual content that's produced and prevents all the people that you want from seeing it. And it works a lot better to just distribute it ungated. That's the point. The point of content is for people to consume it, not for you to collect email addresses. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's what me and Yag also believe. We did an entire show around it. It kind of got a uh, little bit controversial, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, question number two. What's your favorite ad platform from ROI perspective? Is it LinkedIn ads or Facebook ads? This really depends on, ha- on how you're measuring ROI and what you're doing, right? And so each channel has a different purpose. And each channel, depending on certain businesses, can have different ROI metrics, right? Like there's a lot of companies that are going to have the... If you look at attributable, at attributable ROI on last touch attribution, paid search might show up as the one that has the best ROI because it's the most easily attributable and it catches all the people that have buying intent, even though other stuff happened before that. And so if we just split out Facebook and LinkedIn, I continue to move somewhere, but like companies were going in, they're spending $100,000 a month on LinkedIn. And over a three month period, we move 80% of that money into Facebook with good targeting and the right content strategy and the right volume of production and the right conversion points. And see ridiculously better ROI when you look at leads on buying intent. And so, again, like I don't want to make a, a blanket answer because it'll be taken out of context. And if you're using certain platforms for certain objectives, you could get, you could turn out and depending on how you're measuring it, you could say that one platform is better than another. So, the way that I use the platforms, Facebook is by far the best ROI. Understandable. Question number three the number one thing that you have learned from your product management experience that you still apply in marketing? What is it? Customer research, which is something that almost no downstream marketer does. They get all of their feedback through the sales team playing telephone game by listening to recorded sales calls and never talking to an actual customer or prospect. And so the, the things that I did, and I also did this when I was in downstream comms role, it made all of my marketing way better because I understand buyers. Like my content strategy was a hundred times better because I wouldn't talk to a hundred people before I started thinking about what content to create. And so I think customer research is, is by far one of the biggest misses in most, in, in most marketing departments. And so I think that's the one that has been the most impactful for me. And then how you enter the conversation how you execute the conversation, what, what you do with all of the information after you collect it. 
um, I, uh, as we get into the nuances here, like it's not about what exactly like explicitly what the customer said. It's your job as a marketer to translate that to what it means for you. Right. And so people, people will fall into a, a trap of asking very direct biased questions, which lead people to giving you the answer that they want, even though that's not the right answer. And so, yeah, I, I think customer research is the biggest one from like a product management standpoint that I learned early in my career, continue to execute on, use it to inform messaging, to drive product or service strategy. Understanding your customers drives everything. Great answer. Question number four. Let's say you were to hire a marketer for your client company. If that's the case, who would be your top pick? Will it be a candidate with relevant industry experience or someone who comes with some kind of self-starter trait like doing a side gig? I don't think there's a black and white answer to this. I think a lot of companies are romantic about the idea that industry experience matters as much as it did in 1980. Like it, it just doesn't anymore. Like I've moved, I've moved industries throughout my career and the, the ramp time, like in 1980, you were buying people that had industry experience because they had a Rolodex. That's it. Like that's, it's not, it's just not that, it's not that important anymore now that the internet is here and all those things are over. Right. So like in some regulated industries, I can understand it, but even in those regulated industries, they're mainly trying to hire people that have 10 years industry experience for the Rolodex. And what happens when you hire people that have a lot of industry experience is that you end up with an executive team that has a lot of homogenous thinking. They all think the same way. They never challenge the things that they're doing. They still do all the dumb stuff they did 10 years ago. They don't, they don't innovate. And so I, I've, I've watched companies make that mistake. And I believe that injecting, strategically injecting people with different backgrounds and experiences facilitate much quicker and better innovation. And so, I don't, again, just getting back to it, I don't, I don't think that there's a, a right or wrong answer to this. I prefer people that have demonstrated experience in the or demonstrated qualities that I that I believe that will make them successful in what we're actually trying to do, right? And so, if we have we sell a B two B product, let's just pretend we sell a hardware product to hospitals. It's fifty thousand dollars a year. But what we want to do, what we want to innovate on, is we want to sell it e commerce. So are we going to hire the person with 15 years of experience in medical device that has been selling products through field sales organizations for the past 20 years of their career? Or are we going to hire the person that has built an e-commerce company in their bedroom and grew it to a million dollars in revenue selling $3,000 products? Like those, that's the comparison that we need to make here. I, I, I lean toward toward project work and and relevant experience not not necessarily relevant industry experience got it yeah i think um, the maybe a good middle answer to this is a hire a person who maybe understands the problem that your company your brand is trying to solve yeah and uh, another point on that i think is is really interesting as i watch people try and hire people and i talk to a lot of people that I, either i'm trying to hire or someone that i work with trying to hire or, whatever. I have a lot of these different conversations. And when you're starting to hire for someone, let's just say like a, you know, a, a, a head of growth marketing for a hundred million dollar company, the challenge is that the executives don't know how to judge whether or not that person's good. 
and the recruiters don't know how to judge whether or not that person's good. And so they end up hiring someone because they worked at Salesforce, not because they're actually good. Absolutely. And uh, number five and last questions. Once the market opens up after this pandemic, Chris, would you recommend companies go back to the old ways of exhibiting at trade shows and event or carry on with a something new that is going to get them back? This one is really interesting for people to uh, to listen to is that if throughout this time period, you have not found a better marketing execution and a place to put your money than going and building trade show booths at industry conferences, that is your fault. You've had it, by the time events come back, you will almost have had a year, which is I, I'm I'm guessing here. I'm not exactly sure, but at least six months and potentially more than a year of time to figure out a better way to spend the million dollars a year you spend on trade show booths right now. You should still go to the trade show booth. You should send, send your best three sales reps and a couple marketers to create content and a couple people to do customer research or whatever you want to chalk it up and do. But the idea that you need the booth and that's a good that's a good use of money. It, and you haven't found a better place to spend it over the past three, four, five months that we've been kind of like s- slowed down. Um, that's a problem, I feel like. And so, if you didn't, if you didn't innovate during this time, and you didn't find a better way to use those dollars to generate real ROI, I, I kind of hope one of your competitors did. And I think that over time they'll beat you. Love this answer, uh, Chris. Especially you know this this sounds so candid and so speaks to. Uh you know, our, our DNA of our thought. So, yeah, so we're, we're kind of uh, coming to the end of uh, today's conversation. So wanted to ask you, uh, you know, do you have any parting message for our audience? I think we covered a lot. Um, was was really, you know, thrilled and, and honored to, to be on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Would love to, at some point, maybe come back and share some, it's the ABM podcast or some form of that would love to share my thoughts on the current state of ABM and what I see in the market and the way I think companies should pivot, which is a whole nother conversation on its own, but very grateful that you all invited me on here. I hope the listeners got some value out of it. And if anyone wants to uh, enjoy more of my content, they can feel free to follow me on LinkedIn at Chris Walker. All right. So thank you so much for uh, joining us, Chris. It was really fun talking to you and we'll continue to uh, follow your content. And of course, uh, for the listeners, you can, you can follow Chris on LinkedIn. He's quite active. Until the next time, this is thank you from the ABM Conversations podcast. This is me, Yagneshwaran Ganesh. And this is me, Manish. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.